Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 42 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast, where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. I am very excited to have you with us. On July 21st, 2022, the very first episode of the Retro Wildlands went live for all the world to hear. That was just over a year ago, and since then, I've made 40 more episodes where I talk about the games that I grew up with, the new games that I discovered as an adult, and even put together some top 10 lists just to change things up a bit. It really didn't hit me until recently that we've come up to a year already. This is my first ever podcast and public project, and I have to say, it has been one incredible journey. I've learned a lot, I've networked with some incredible people and fellow podcasters, and ultimately, I've played a bunch of new-to-me video games that I probably wouldn't have played otherwise. And somehow, through it all, there are people out there that decided to actually listen to my passion project. Yes, people like you, in fact. And I could not be more grateful, seriously. So when I realized we hit that year mark, I started to think about what I should do to celebrate. When I started looking to see what others were doing, I latched onto the idea of doing a question and answer episode. Something that would give the listeners a chance to dictate what I talked about and interact with the show in one of the more direct ways possible, and a question and answer episode sounded perfect. I've really appreciated all of the support I've gotten over the last year or so, and I wanted to give you all a chance to sound off, and I love answering questions and talking about all sorts of topics. So once I decided that's what we were doing, I locked it in by making multiple callouts to the community on social media and some of the Discord channels that I'm a part of. And my god, you all did not disappoint. We have over 20 questions from you Wildlanders covering topics such as gaming, the podcast, and podcasting in general, Didi, our canine expedition leader and his brother from another dog mother, Dexter, movies, and so much more. I'm hoping you all have a good time today because I had a fantastic time putting this episode together. Depending on how you all feel, I may make this a yearly tradition or maybe I'll do another one before our second year anniversary if there's demand for it. Either way, we're going to have some fun today, so get yourselves comfortable, my friends. Grab your choice of drink, pick a seat by the campfire, and settle in. We are in for a meaty show today, my friends, because on today's episode, you all are asking the questions and I'm giving answers in our very first edition of Ask Nomad. Before we get to the questions, allow me to set the table for the episode. 
I lumped the questions I received in a couple categories and I'm going to group them together in case you're only interested in some and not interested in other topics. We have questions about gaming, questions about the podcast and podcasting in general, some questions about my two canine companions, and a couple miscellaneous questions. I should have put timestamps in the show notes so you can see where the groups start and stop if you want to skip around or you aren't interested in something specific. Okay, with that, let's get this show on the road. To start us off, it only seems right to start with the gaming questions. These are going to be fun to work through, so without further ado, it is time to ask Nomad. Our first question comes from Curtis, who chimed in over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page. He asked, Could you give us your top three favorite and least favorite, at least one, video game genres? For the most part, there aren't many game genres I don't like. I feel like my gaming tastes are quite eclectic, in all honesty. One of my favorite genres has always been RPGs, role-playing games. It could be a JRPG or a Western RPG, but any game that's an RPG or even has elements of RPG in them automatically piques my interest. I have Final Fantasy VII to thank for this specifically. FF7 wasn't my first ever RPG, but it was the one that I played where I was old enough to understand how stats like strength, magic, and vitality impact character growth. Beyond that, I've always been a fan of fantasy games in general. You know, the ones with swords and axes, magic, dragons, and wizards. I love properties like Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings, Golden Axe, The Witcher, Elder Scrolls, you name it. I haven't played many Japanese role-playing games, but I know if I made the time, I know I would love them. The one that I've already put the most amount of time in is Persona 4 Golden on my PlayStation Vita, though I have not finished this game yet. One day, though, I may get back around to it. My second favorite genre would have to be shooters. Now, this can include side-scrolling shoot-'em-ups, third-person shooters, first-person shooters, light gun shooters, tactical shooters, looter shooters, you name it. I tend to gravitate towards shooters where the weapons are a bit more realistic, like military shooters, for example. So that's your Call of Duties, Medal of Honors, Battlefields, Brothers in Arms, SOCOMs, Sniper Elites, the list goes on. And now that I think about it, that's a big reason why I loved playing The Division so much. An RPG with a real-world setting just scratched both itches for me almost perfectly. But even if the weapons aren't realistic per se, I do love me a good shooter. And my last favorite game genre is survival horror. It all started with the original Resident Evil on the PlayStation for me, but man, I love me a good survival horror game, or even just a horror game in general. I love a lot of the original Resident Evils, but really got a kick out of Resident Evil 7. Dead Space and Dead Space 2, those ones also give me chills today. Outlast is another one that makes my hair stand on end. Haunting Ground on the PlayStation 2 was another good one that I got to experience. The original three Silent Hill games were practically horror personified. And then Until Dawn on the PlayStation 4 was the one that I've been playing every Halloween for several years in a row now, just to give you a wide assortment of examples. 
I just love putting myself in a dark room, slapping on a pair of headphones, and walking around in the darkness trying to survive. It is an adrenaline rush that I just cannot explain. Some people go skydiving, I play horror games. Now, as far as my least favorite genres, the first one that immediately comes to mind are racing games or vehicle-centric games. I like realistic racers like Gran Turismo, for instance, because I used to actually work on cars back in my 20s. I used to be an alignment technician, so I would go under the car and tweak the suspension to make the car go straight. In Gran Turismo, you can mess with the settings like that on your cars that you drove, and I really like that idea. But at the same time, it was almost like work to me, adjusting all those angles just to get a bit more performance and handling out of my car. Now, I know what you're thinking. How is it different from tweaking an RPG party? It isn't really. I just found the nuances of cars and vehicles to not be as appealing as they used to be. Some games in this genre are fun, though. The Burnout series has a great premise, and Need for Speed is generally a good choice. But at the end of the day, racers are just not for me. But if you put a kart racer in front of me like Mario Kart, Diddy Kong Racing, or Chocobo GP, I am all in for those. Now speaking of gaming genres, Dischimera reached out through one of the Discord servers that I'm a part of, specifically the Discord server that belongs to the Good, the Bad, and the Backlog podcast, and asked me, what's a genre you can't get into and why? Now I know I just got done saying that racing games and vehicle-centric games generally aren't for me, but if there has to be one genre specifically that no matter how hard I try I just cannot get into, it's real-time strategy games. I'm talking about the likes of Age of Empires, Starcraft, Command and Conquer. I really, really want to like and get good at RTS games, but I don't think I'm smart enough for these games. There's just too much to keep track of in real time. Troop movements, resource management, battle tactics, the enemy's capabilities. It all sounds really awesome, but I was never good at games like these, so I tend to avoid them whenever I have the option. Sometimes, though, I like watching games in this genre being played more than I like playing them, and I have mad respect for anyone who's good at these types of games. They are just not my cup of tea. I do, however, like turn-based strategy games a little bit more. Games like XCOM, Advance Wars, and I argue you can lump Final Fantasy Tactics into this category. When I have to keep track of a smaller squad or a set of units and I'm not feeling rushed to make decisions, I tend to have a bit more fun building up my units and watching them develop over time. But yeah, real-time strategy games are just a genre I cannot seem to get into. Moving along to our next one, this question comes from Lori over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page. She simply asked, Mario or Luigi? Why? (sighs) This is a simple yet complicated question. It's very easy to default to Mario when you think about a question like this. Back when I was growing up with Mario on the original Nintendo that my grandparents had, Mario was always player one. 
Mario was front and center when it came to conversation, magazine covers, and more importantly, gameplay. Luigi was relegated to Player 2, and that meant my cousins, my friends, or whoever else would come play games with me got to play as Luigi. And for years, that's how I looked at Luigi. Number 2. Secondary. Even when he was in Super Mario Bros. 2, and he started to develop his own unique traits like his signature flutter jump, he always seemed like a subpar character to me. I mean, no kid wants to play the sidekick, right? We always want to play the hero, and Mario was the hero. But then, I got older, and arguably a little wiser, and I started to look at Luigi in a different light. As different games came out, Luigi started to step out of his brother's shadow. For starters, he has some abilities that Mario doesn't. The flutter kick is one of the obvious ones, but did you know that Luigi can walk on water? Yes, in Super Mario Bros. 64 on the DS, Luigi can briefly run across water if he's running fast enough. Can Mario do that? No, he cannot. Luigi is also just a naturally high jumper too, let's not forget that. But beyond all of that, what sets Luigi apart from his brother is the fact that he's been developing as a character over time, whereas Mario just kind of stays the same. Way back on the Nintendo GameCube, Luigi starred in Luigi's Mansion, where he braved a haunted house full of ghosts in order to find his brother. That game really started to establish some of Luigi's character traits that most of us are probably aware of already, which is his extreme cowardice. But even despite all of that, he did everything he could to face his fears, push forward, and do everything he could to find his brother. Mario! Mario? Mario? Luigi was also forgotten and put down as part of the story in several other games like Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga, where many characters couldn't even remember Luigi's name. But more so recently, Luigi has found his identity through it all. He may be cautious and easy to scare and always number two in the eyes of many, but Luigi is dependable and even somewhat refined. Mario, don't get me wrong, is a fantastic character and a true all-around hero, but his brother Luigi is coming out of his shadow and it's been awesome to see this over the years. I especially like his portrayal in the new Super Mario Bros. movie as well. So, to answer your question, Lori, it's Luigi for me. I'm a Luigi, number one. Next up, we have a question from William, which also came from our Retro Wildlands Facebook page. He asked, Mario 3 or Mario World? <sighs> Another good one. Super Mario 3 on the NES was the best Mario game on that console, and I think we can all agree on that. Super Mario World was the best Mario game on the Super Nintendo, and I think we can all agree on that. But which is better, and which do I prefer? Let's quickly break them down a little bit here. From a gameplay standpoint, both are pretty fun and precise platformers. As far as power-ups go, I love Mario 3 for all the cool ones that it had. 
The super leaf, the tanuki suit, the frog suit, the goomba shoe, and even the hammer suit were all awesome and really cool power-ups. Super Mario World had the cape, and that's really all I remember as far as a power-up standpoint goes, so that's kind of a bummer. Super Mario World, though, did have better level design in my opinion, and there were far more secrets to find in Super Mario World than there was in Mario 3. Oh, and Super Mario World lets you replay levels at your leisure, whereas it was one and done with Mario 3. And the graphics were obviously better in Super Mario World given the hardware that it was played on. But on the other hand, I like the soundtrack to Mario 3 more than I like it in Mario World, and I always like the idea of taking on all the Koopa Kids and their airships at the end of each area better than just tromping around in castle after castle in Mario World. I even have some awesome memories tied to each game. I remember playing Mario 3 at my aunt's house when I would visit her when I was little, and Super Mario World was a game that my friends and I beat together constantly, even on a beach vacation that we took one year. So, at the end of the day, which do I prefer? I think it just comes down to which game I'd rather play, and if I had to choose only one to play for the rest of my life, I have to go with Super Mario World. With so many secrets and the ability to replay levels over and over, Super Mario World has much more staying power for me than Mario 3 does, and going for maximum completion in this game never gets old to me. So, my apologies to all the Mario 3 lovers out there, I absolutely love Mario 3, but Super Mario World is the Mario game for me. Moving on to our next question. This one comes from my wife, Justine, who wanted to know, if you could live in one of the video games that you've played, which would it be? Now, this is a very good question, sweetheart, and it really made me think. Right off the bat, my mind immediately went to the world of the fifth Elder Scrolls game, Skyrim. There's not much to say about Skyrim that hasn't already been said. It's been several years since I've personally played Skyrim, and I keep thinking about going back to it. Justine herself isn't really much of a gamer, but she really got into Skyrim back in the day as well. So it almost seems like a no-brainer to want to live in this world. It's beautiful, can even be peaceful at times, and you can pretty much do whatever you want and be whatever you want to be. But the more I thought about it, Skyrim is as much dangerous as it is beautiful. I mean, think about it. If I were going to go wandering around and just happen to walk into an area where I was underleveled, I would be screwed. And let's not forget these gigantic giants that can send you flying sky high. And let us not forget the dragons. Unless the dragonborn is out there doing his job, all it takes is just one dragon encounter and we are toast. So yeah, Skyrim sounds great on paper, but I ruled this one out. Ultimately, though, I think living in Mario Odyssey on the Nintendo Switch would be an awesome place to live. Justine and I have been playing this game together on and off, and I love what we've experienced so far. There's so many vast worlds to visit, and while there are hazards and enemies roaming around, it's a Mario game, and they aren't all that dangerous. Plus, if we have Cappy, we can just steal their souls and become them for a little bit and get to places we couldn't otherwise. It would be perfect. But in all seriousness, the theme in Mario Odyssey that sticks out to me is travel, discovery, and wonder. And that's something that excites me when I think about it. 
I would love to wake up and not know what's next and just have worlds of almost infinite possibilities laid out before me. And that seems like the perfect place to spend time with my wife. Our next question is a bit similar to my wife's, but it has an interesting twist. Randall from the Good, the Bad, and the Backlogs Discord server asked me, Since your name is Nomad, what game world would you be okay to backpack across until you've crossed the entire thing? I don't do this kind of thing very much anymore and I would love to get back to it, but I enjoy hiking. Walking is probably my favorite form of exercise, whether it's walking around my neighborhood with the dogs, checking out a hiking trail near me, or going up the side of a mountain. I especially like rucking, where you walk while you have a weighted backpack on your back. So all that said, what game world would be the one that I would want to backpack across? It might be a lame answer, but I would have to go with the Mushroom Kingdom. There are a lot of iterations of the Mushroom Kingdom across countless Mario games, but it usually keeps to the same theme. Lush green fields, vast deserts, ice-covered lands, and plenty of hills. It almost sounds treacherous to hike across, but in my mind, if I'm going to be hiking across a vast landscape, I'd want it to be a landscape with a lot to see. Plus, there's plenty of amenities that would make the trip much easier or just change things up a bit. I'm talking about the random floating bricks, power-ups, and let's not forget the warp pipes. And while the Mushroom Kingdom is full of enemies to avoid, none of them are really all that dangerous in my mind. I mean, while there's Goombas and Koopas roaming around everywhere, they have no problem coming over and throwing down for a game of Mario Party, so how bad can they be, really? One other choice I was thinking about was the world of The Last of Us. Now, The Last of Us is set in a post-apocalyptic United States and probably doesn't sound like the best place to go hiking, but those that have played the games have to admit that there is something beautiful, if not maybe a little haunting, about the landscape. Time stands still, and flora and fauna have retaken the land. It sounds odd, but I would love to explore a world like that, a world that's been lost to time. But that would be under the very strict stipulation that there would be no raiders, bandits, or any infected humans running around that would want to rip my throat out. The last thing I want to have to worry about is hearing some clickers off in the distance. Next up, we have a question from the Unbuckled Comics podcast. Unbuckled wrote in on our Facebook page and posed this scenario. Pick two console exclusives to swap as if it were a trade. Example, Nintendo trades Metroid to PlayStation and in return gets Final Fantasy, or Xbox sends Fable to PlayStation in return for Spider-Man. Try to make the trade that would benefit each company the most and explain your reason. Now this kind of question I actually find myself pondering every once in a while. It's no secret that Xbox doesn't have nearly as many exclusives as PlayStation does. Xbox hardly has any exclusive IPs, or at least any IPs that they're doing anything with. When I think about this scenario, I think about PlayStation and I think about Xbox. So when I think this through, what I think Xbox could use from PlayStation that they would be able to benefit from 
would be the Twisted Metal series. I've debated this with a few people from time to time, but giving Twisted Metal to Xbox just makes sense to me. I think the last Twisted Metal game that we got was back in 2012, and while there's a TV series out on it right now, based on the game, which I'm not sure if I'm going to make time to watch or not, we'll have to see, Twisted Metal is just kind of sitting around. Since the series is based around vehicular combat that has several players going against each other all at one time, it just screams online multiplayer to me. And I think Microsoft could really utilize their online multiplayer successes in the past, like Gears of War, Halo for example, and really turn the Twisted Metal series into something awesome. Keep the single player campaign, open up online multiplayer, and leverage those resources. And, to put the cherry on top, release the game day one on Xbox Game Pass. Build your user base through that platform and you're off. I think there's a lot of love for the Twisted Metal franchise, and I certainly loved what I played of it, so I'd like to see a new studio and platform get their hands on it and turn it around or turn it into something new. Xbox really needs an exclusive that gamers like and want to play, and I think Twisted Metal would do well here. Now, for as far as what Xbox could trade to PlayStation, I've listened to a few arguments, and I think there's one clear choice in my opinion. Microsoft should hand over Perfect Dark to PlayStation. Now, I've not played any Perfect Dark personally, so I can't speak from my own experience, but Perfect Dark is a series that I really think deserves some attention, and I think one of PlayStation's many first-party studios, like maybe even Guerrilla Games, could do something awesome with it. Perfect Dark is a first-person shooter that was originally made for the Nintendo 64. When you think of shooters on the Nintendo, you usually think of GoldenEye, and Perfect Dark usually follows right after that. While Perfect Dark did exceptionally well on the N64, Rare, the developer, was eventually bought out by Microsoft, so Perfect Dark belongs to them now. They released Perfect Dark Zero in 2002, and while I think the game did okay, it wasn't as widely received and accepted as the original. And since then, the series has just sort of existed. And while I know there's a remake that's currently in the works, I think Microsoft needs to just hand it over to Sony and let them take a stab at it. You could argue that Sony has plenty of shooter IPs like Killzone and Resistance, for instance, but right now, Sony is flexing their muscles with games like The Last of Us, Uncharted, God of War, and Horizon Zero Dawn. I think Sony could use a new first-person shooter, and Perfect Dark just sounds, well, perfect. Now, speaking of game franchises, let's shift gears and talk about some from Nintendo. Rob, over on our Retro Wildlands Twitter page, or X page, or whatever, wrote in and asked, which Nintendo franchise needs a resurgence or a renaissance? You could also substitute Nintendo with any video game franchise. Well, for your question, Rob, I want to stick with a Nintendo franchise on this one, since I feel like I'm getting back to Nintendo more and more lately, personally. I know the Nintendo Switch has been out for really a long time now, but I've only just recently decided to get into that ecosystem. Plus, I'm playing more and more older Nintendo games as I explore games for the podcast. Now that being said, what Nintendo franchise needs a comeback? 
This might be a hot take, since I know there's a ton of F-Zero racing fans out there itching for something new, but I want to see Star Fox make a resurgence. Star Fox on the Super Nintendo and Star Fox 64 on the N64 are admittedly the only two games in the series that I've played up to this point, and it's these style games that I would want to see come back. Both are considered on-rail shooters, but I want to see this come back with much more aircraft mobility while keeping what made these games good. Personally, I love games where I'm flying around in aircraft laying waste to enemies both airborne and ground-based. Star Fox has interesting characters, well, except for you, Slippy, an interesting world, and a so-so antagonist in Andross. I would love to see all of this come back and expanded upon. While Nintendo's online functionalities are hit or miss at times, it seems, it has online games like Splatoon, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, Mario Party, Mario Strikers, and Mario Kart. Doesn't have an online game quite like what Star Fox could be. Just imagine this. You could take on missions together in a co-op campaign, either online or local, or you could jump online and take on others in various game modes like Team Deathmatch or Free For All or whatever game modes make sense. Star Fox was never that complicated of a game to play, but it does take some time to truly master. I think that would make for an excellent type of game today. So... While I don't think it's the popular choice, I'd love to see Fox McCloud and all of his friends, except for you, Slippy, come back to Nintendo. Continuing on, Kurt had a good question which he submitted over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page. He asked, if you could pick one console to play for the rest of your life and only play from the original library, so no ROMs or hacked systems with vintage games, etc., which would you choose? Which games anchor your decision? I thought about this question very hard at one point a few years ago, and I think my answer is not going to be one that people expect. So if we're keeping this year's stipulations, Kurt, and just keeping it to the original library of games, my number two pick would be the Super Nintendo. With the exception of maybe one or two games, I have yet to play a bad game on that console. Plus, there are a ton of game types. The SNES has Super Mario World, Super Mario Kart, A Link to the Past, Super Metroid, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, Mega Man X, and Turtles in Time, just to name a few. These are all popular games, but there's plenty of hidden gems across the console as well. So, you would think it would be a no-brainer to go with the Super Nintendo. But, for me, if I had only one console to play for the rest of my life, it would be the PlayStation Portable. The original PlayStation was the system that I really started my gaming career on, and while I love systems like the NES, SNES, Genesis, and so on, the library of games on the PlayStation Portable has always impressed me. While I don't think there are many games on the console that have the popularity and the prestige as some of the SNES titles that I just mentioned, I think that's part of why I love this system so much. 
Some of my favorites on the console would be Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII, Siphon Filter, Dark Mirror, and Logan Shadow, Ratchet and Clank, Size Matters, Dissidia, Final Fantasy, God of War, Chains of Olympus, Metal Gear Solid, Portable Ops, and Peace Walker, Puzzle Quest, Silent Hill Origins, the list just goes on and on. And if I needed to get my retro fix, there are a lot of classic collections on the PlayStation Portable as well. EA Replay, which has games like Wing Commander, Road Rash, Desert Strike, the Capcom Classics Collection, it's got games like Street Fighter 2, 1942, Knights of the Round, and then there's the Atari Classics Evolved Collection that I have that has old-school Atari games like Pong and Missile Command, and then some modernized variants of those, so I think those are covered pretty well, too. All my preferred genres are present as well, and even then, there are plenty of essential games on this console. Monster Hunter is represented on the system, as well as games like Ridge Racer, Tekken, and even Grand Theft Auto. Hundreds of games that work so well on the portable system, and I want to experience them all. So much so that I have decided that the PlayStation Portable is the one system that I want to collect as many games as I can for. I would love to have a complete North American games collection on the console. While I'm collecting games on other consoles that I want to play, the PlayStation Portable is the one system that I'm grabbing anything that I see at a reasonable price. I love the portability and power of this system, and I cannot deny that it's a favorite of mine. So if every other console out there was to all of a sudden be wiped off this planet, I would be just fine, so long as I had my PlayStation Portable and its underrated library of games. Moving on to our next gaming-related question, Will Kreplin, hopefully I got that last name right there, Will, presented this interesting thought from the Good, the Bad, and the Backlogs Discord server. He asked, At what point for you does choice and opinions in a game go from being a benefit to being a burden? So it's no secret that as games get bigger, more robust, and more expensive, it only makes sense that gameplay options, player choice, and freedom would increase with all of that. And it all sounds amazing. And it should, because I'm sure we can all agree that we would love to get more content out of our games if it makes sense, especially if it's something that you're really enjoying or looking forward to. But at what point does it become too much and actually hamper the gameplay experience? For me, it largely depends on how the game itself presents all the game has to offer to you and how subconsciously it leads you down the path of the experience that the game wants you to have. Hopefully, I can explain what I mean here. Let's think about an open world game. Typically, when you open the world map, you may find waypoint markers for things like towns and dungeons, but you might also find things like treasure to claim, enemy outposts to neutralize, collectibles to grab, quest markers, and other random points of interest. Where it becomes burdensome to me is when you're constantly being shown where you should go next or what objective you need to chase. Your map and your HUD are just full of things to do, and the game is constantly pushing you to stop at each and every one, or you run the risk of missing out on something. I have to imagine some of you have experienced this before. 
Or, better yet, when objectives or things in the world return, like repeatable quests or areas that you've taken over are all of a sudden occupied by the enemy again. This actually reminds me of The Division when I used to play it pretty hot and heavy a few years ago. I can't remember if it was the first Division or the second one, but after you completed the main story, the areas and outposts that you liberated would come back under attack and fall back under control of the enemy. And it felt like such a chore to take these areas back over and over again. You would take over a territory, some time would pass, and then you would have to take it over again. Now, I get the reason why this is when it comes to a gameplay standpoint, because it allows you to get more loot and continue to gain more experience. And while I get that and completely understand it, sometimes I just wanted to do something else. So when a game just shoves content in your face and pulls you around its world, that's when a game's many, many options and content can be overwhelming and burdensome. I'll bring it up again just to make a point, but a game that I think does very well with balancing gameplay and content is Skyrim. It's a massive open world game, but the only things that pop up are the things that you discover on your own. Skyrim encourages exploration and taking on quests at your own pace. When I played that game, I never felt pressured to do any one specific thing, and I never had this fear of missing out on something. My map only had what I naturally found, and it made immersion in this world much more natural. It was a vast and large open world, but it was on me to decide how I wanted to explore it and what I deemed to be important. And that's what makes games like Skyrim so special and worth your time, and games that chuck everything at you all at once seem like chores. Curtis over on our Facebook page posed another question I thought would be fun to answer. He asked, What movie, or movies, involving video games do you still think of as excellent today, and why is The Wizard number one on that list? Now, Curtis, you've been part of the Wildlands expedition for a very long time, and I hope the next thing I say does not cause you to turn tail and run. But I have not seen The Wizard. I know, I know, that hurt to say, but growing up, I never saw the movie. I actually never even heard of The Wizard until maybe a few years ago. I absolutely want to see The Wizard, though. It's the film that introduced Super Mario 3 to North America, and has a pretty good story from what I've been told, even if it didn't review all that well way back in the day. So yeah, one day I will catch this film, and I will let you know my feelings on it, Curtis, mark my words. But, to answer your question, I think there's a few video game movies that still hold up today and are excellent. Now, to be clear, this is just my personal opinion. I'm sure somebody's gonna roll their eyes at all of my picks here. But, first on my list is the first Resident Evil movie starring Mia Jovovich. I remember seeing this movie with my best friend Chris in theaters when it was released, and I was on cloud nine the whole time. Sure, the movie didn't really cross with the video game all that much, but I loved that the movie tried to tell its own story in this universe, and it was just really fun to watch. It's still entertaining today, and it's the perfect shut-your-brain-off type of entertainment. 
Some of the action scenes were pretty well done, I thought, and the story was interesting for what it was, since it was an amnesia tale for our main character. The zombies could have been done a lot better, and the story could have been a little bit more robust, but it was a contained enough experience where you were vested in the outcome, and you started to connect with some of the characters, even if it was all only surface level. Say what you will about the rest of the movies in this series, but the original Resident Evil movie is still one of my guilty pleasure movies, and I think it holds up well today. But there's one movie that came out in 2018 that I think we'll look back on in 30 years, and it will have stood the test of time. That movie is called Ready Player One, the movie based on the novel of the same name. It's a film that isn't based on a video game per se, but it's an ode to pop and gaming culture, and contains nods and references to games stemming from the last few decades. The book was amazing, and I think they did a very good job with the movie. The story was entertaining, and the references they put in the movie weren't really all that forced, and they felt like they fit naturally into the world. My wife loves watching this movie, so I've seen it a bunch of times up to this point, and every time I sit and watch it, I always find a new nod or reference that I didn't see before. It's a great film that I think you should give a chance if you haven't already. It always gets me in the mood to game when I finish it. Our last gaming-related question comes from the Game Junction over on our Facebook page, and posed a question I often find myself pondering as a parent. They asked, Do you think 8-bit or 16-bit holds up better for the coming generations? Should they get into retro gaming? So to answer this one and solidify my personal reasoning, I'm going to pick on my stepson a little bit. He's a 16-year-old that plays games constantly. He's at that age now where maybe we'll see him for dinner, maybe we won't. He's normally playing multiplayer-centric games right now, like Call of Duty, War Thunder, and Rocket League. He was even part of his school's esports team where they played Rocket League, and he did pretty well overall. But the games he's playing right now are all multiplayer, competitive-focused games. He's not really into the single-player experiences, and honestly, that makes me a little sad. Part of me wonders why that could be, and when I think about it, I think back to my own upbringing. I am an only child, and while I had my small, close group of nerd friends, we didn't grow up with the ability to play games together online. We had sleepovers and would occasionally play games until the next morning whenever we had the chance, but those were special occasions and didn't happen all that often. Nowadays, with the internet and instant accessibility being a thing, Kids can link up with their friends pretty much whenever and wherever they want, and right now this is how kids today are growing bonds with their friends. Or at least that's how my stepson seems to be making his bonds. Playing a single-player game doesn't make sense because you can't play it with another person in that moment. So that brings me back to the last part of the Game Junction's question, should the coming generations get into retro gaming? I argue yes, they should. It's not so much about seeing where video games came from and reliving the past or anything, it's more about injecting them into a solo experience and getting them comfortable with playing by themselves and enjoying a rich experience. I'm going on 39 years old this year, and if there's anything that I've learned that I think we all need in our lives, 
It's the ability to be okay with being alone and being able to enjoy things without others. Solo experience video games, especially old video games, are a great way to get comfortable with this idea. You can certainly enjoy these things with others or connect with people and share experiences, but in the moment, that alone time when you're immersed in a game, whether you're playing through an epic story or just chasing a high score, is important. While I think competitive and cooperative gameplay certainly has its place, I really think we could all benefit from a balance. And to loop in the first part of this question, would 8-bit or 16-bit games hold up better, I have to think 16-bit games would be the place to start if we're talking retro games. 8-bit games like old-school Nintendo titles are not easy games, and they never were easy games, and I think that difficulty would turn off pretty much anyone trying to get into retro games, at least at first. We live in a world now where getting blasts of dopamine are easier and easier than ever, and I think the frustration someone might get trying to play an old game like Contra for the first time may not have the impact that we'd be hoping for. But things even out a little bit in the 16-bit era. Games like Streets of Rage 2, A Link to the Past, and Super Mario World are challenging, but they aren't unforgiving, and they're a lot more accessible. Hopefully that answers that question, and to all the parents out there, I just want to say, I am not telling you what to do with your kiddos. We're all trying to figure out this parenting thing, and we have plenty of opinions about the younger generations. Regardless of what kind of games we all play, any sort of video game can bring us all together in some capacity or another, and that's why I think video gaming is one of the best hobbies ever. And with that, let's move on to a few questions that are centered around the Retro Wildlands Canine Companions. For those that don't know, we have two dogs here at home. We have Dee Dee, whom I talk about practically every episode of the podcast, and we also have Dexter, who's our cranky little old man. Both dogs are chihuahuas and are very much a part of our family, and we have oodles and oodles of love to give and get from both of them. Let's roll through some questions about our boys from the community. First up, for our canine-centric questions, we have two questions from my stepdaughter Cameron that I think will set this section up nicely. She asked, What is your favorite memory involving Dee Dee? And what is your favorite thing about Dee Dee? So I thought about this a lot, and I think my favorite memory involving my boy has to be the very first day that I met him, because in that moment, I had no idea that this little dog was going to steal my heart. Several years ago, I had come home from work in the evening. It was late, I was tired, and eager to relax at home. Once I got home, Dexter, who had been with us for a while up to that point, ran up to me as I was taking my shoes off. But as I was making my way into the house, I looked past the kitchen into the living room. My wife was sitting on the couch looking over at me, and I could tell that she had a little puppy in her arms. I stopped, looked down at Dexter before looking up at her, and asked, If Dexter is here, who the hell is that? 
Apparently a family friend's dog just had puppies and my wife decided that we were going to adopt one. A little while prior to this, we had lost another dog of ours named Foxy and I just assumed it was my wife trying to fill that hole with another puppy. But in that moment, in all honesty, I was not happy. I wasn't angry at my wife or anything, but I wanted no part of another dog. So for the next three days or so, I made it a point to avoid our latest bundle of joy. He would try to sniff me, lick my hand, or crawl on my lap, but I just shook my head, picked him up, and set him aside. I admittedly was being stubborn, mostly because Justine didn't talk to me first about this. But a few days went by, and eventually that little pup won me over. He melted my heart with his cute little face and his beady little eyes and his soft little paw pads. Eventually, though, he needed a name, and as a way to apologize for not talking to me first before adopting this dog, I was allowed to name him. At the time, I was playing Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, on my PlayStation 4, and those that have played the game know that there's a dog companion in this game named Dee Dee. Dee Dee stands for Diamond Dog in the game, and I loved playing the game with him at your side. I couldn't think of any other dog name that fits, so I decided to call our little pup Dee Dee, and that was that. And to roll into the second question, what's my favorite thing about Dee Dee? Honestly, it's the fact that no matter what I do or don't do, no matter what mood I'm in, no matter how I'm feeling about myself that day, Dee Dee shows me a love that is unconditional. And I know that sounds sappy and all dogs are creatures of loyalty, but Dee Dee came into my life at just the right time. I was a year or so into a new role at my job and things in general just felt really stressful. Sometimes I'd wonder if I was doing the right things, saying the right things, and putting my efforts into the right places. But my favorite thing about him is that no matter what, he's there to put a smile on my face, play a little tug-of-war with me, flip on his back for me so I can give him belly rubs, and snuggles next to me when I go to bed at night. My wife and kids fill my heart up in so many ways, but this dog fills in the rest in a way that only a dog can. So it only made sense that he would travel with me into these gaming wildlands when I started this podcast passion project. I actually put him on our podcast logo before making anything else. I want this dog to bring others the joy that he brings me, so he became the obvious choice to lead our expedition. Lori over on our Facebook page dropped another question, this time about Dee Dee. She asked, Does Dee Dee have a toy from a video game, and if so, what is it? Oddly enough, Lori, Dee Dee doesn't have very many toys, and unfortunately none of them are video game related. The reason he doesn't have a lot of toys is the fact that he has one go-to toy right now, and that is a toy that he's been playing with for quite some time now. It's a lamb that used to have squeakers in all four of its feet and one big one in the center. Sometimes while I'm working from home or doing podcast stuff or playing a video game, he'll bring the lamb over and drop it at my feet and just stare at me. I don't remember how it all started, but he loves playing tug at the weirdest times. Sometimes I can get him riled up by slapping the side of my leg and going, Go get your tug, boy! And he'll run through the house, 
try to find this thing, grab it, and then bring it to me so we can tug on it a little bit. It's about as cute as you're picturing in your head right now, I can guarantee it. We've tried some other dog toys and things with him, but nothing else really stuck. He's just head over heels in love with this lamb right now. So, maybe I'll consider getting him a video game themed toy one of these days, but right now, Dee Dee is content. And for our last canine-centric question, Curtis from the Retro Wildlands Facebook page had one final request. He said, We all know about our fearless expedition leader, Dee Dee, but tell us more about Dexter, who guards the home front. I am really glad you asked this question, Curtis, but I'm also a little ashamed that you needed to. Like I mentioned before, Dexter is our other chihuahua, and thinking back, I think I've only mentioned him on the intro to the podcast maybe a handful of times. So Dexter is our little old man chihuahua, and my wife brought him into our marriage with her. He's a grumpy little guy and has perfected that old man yells at cloud approach to life. He is pretty much Dee Dee's opposite. Dexter isn't one to run around and want to play all that much, and doesn't always go out of his way to seek your affection. But when he does, it is pretty adorable. He's smaller than Dee Dee, and he has these beady little bug eyes that you just can't help but fall in love with. Dexter snores like I do when he sleeps, although it's much cuter and tolerable when he's the one snoring. But whenever I describe Dexter to anyone, I refer to him as our old man chihuahua, and for good reason. He's usually the first to bark at a random noise, so he's pretty quick to get into that get-off-my-lawn mentality. He's also a hoarder, and in the worst way. If I give him and Dee Dee both a bone to chew on, Dexter will take his bone and, while chewing on it, will watch Dee Dee chew on his, and then wait for Dee Dee to walk away and leave it unattended. Then Dexter will snatch it up, bury it in a blanket, and save it for himself for later. It's always fun watching Dee Dee come back and not finding where he left his bone. It's funny, yet sad. But speaking of blankets, Dexter loves to bury himself in ones that we keep on the couch. And he's so stealthy about it, too. Sometimes if you sit next to him and not know it, he'll spring out from under the blanket to nip at you, just like one of those trapdoor spiders. We always have to press down softly on the blankets anytime we want to sit down, just to make sure that Dexter isn't hiding among them. But of all the things that define Dexter, it has to be the switchblade that he carries with him at all times. Dexter's an old man up to this point, and he has seen some things, and absolutely does not have time for nonsense. If he likes you, he'll show it by wagging his little tail and jumping on your leg, looking for you to pick him up. But if you cross him in any way, be very careful when you walk past him. Because Dexter holds grudges, and he does not forget. (laughs) I am embellishing a little bit, but Dexter really is a unique dog. I honestly don't give him enough love on the show, and it's very obvious around the house that I favor Dee Dee more than I favor Dexter. I have to convince my wife at times that I really do love him and make sure to pet him from time to time. But more than anything, though, I respect Dexter and his desire to just be left at peace. He'll come out when he wants to come out, and when he does, he can just as easily steal hearts like Dee Dee can.
that is it for all of the dog questions. We had a couple miscellaneous questions that I couldn't quite fit anywhere, so let's tackle those next. Then, to close out the show, I'll run through some questions related to this podcast and podcasting in general. The next question comes from Adam, who is the host of the Good, the Bad, and the Backlog gaming podcast, and asked a classic question that always invokes some good thought. He asked, Would you rather be deaf or blind? Well, neither is my official answer, but if I had no choice but to choose... Let me think here. Being that gaming is my main hobby and I love watching movies, especially in the theater, I appreciate good sound design and how it can enhance a good experience. And called me old-fashioned, but when I'm sipping on a cup of coffee in the morning on my patio, I enjoy the sound of the wind moving through the trees and the birds chirping as I take in some caffeine and prepare for the day. But on the other hand, if I can't see, my ability to do much of what I love goes out the window. My adult job is a bit more reliant on my sight than my hearing, and even though I can't experience the glorious sound of video games and movies, I'd rather see them than only be able to hear them. Sure, there's an argument for being able to picture a movie in my mind based on the sounds, but there's no way I could play any video games, and that right there is my deal breaker. I'd rather see them and not hear them than hear them and not see them. It would be like playing an old-school RPG where I imagined the character voices and sounds in my head when I was reading dialogue text. Did anybody else do that, or was that just me? But anyway, to answer your question, Adam, if I had to choose between the two, I would rather be deaf than blind. Our last miscellaneous question comes from Curtis, who asked one final question over on our Facebook page. His question was, What other conventions are you looking forward to in the next year or so in your eternal hunt for quote-unquote new retro video games? What's been your favorite so far? So, oddly enough, I've only been to one actual gaming convention at the time of this recording, and it was last November when I went to the Torg Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio. Torg, which stands for The Ohio Retro Gamer, was a fantastic first experience. Last year, around the time I started the Retro Wildlands, it hit me that I've never been to any sort of gaming convention. I jumped online one night and searched gaming conventions near me, and Torg was at the top of the list. Without thinking about it too much, I grabbed two VIP passes and drug my wife along with me. While she didn't find it nearly as awesome as I did, we had an incredible time. I met a few notable people like the immortal John Hancock and Brett Weiss, picked up some awesome games, and so much more. I also met Jeremy and Randy from the Canned Air podcast, which you should search up and listen to, by the way, and they were the highlight of the entire experience for me. They really made me feel welcome as a fledgling podcaster, and I felt inspired by their advice and their kindness. The convention also had free play areas scattered around, too, with gaming consoles set up. They had cosplay contests going on, tons of vendor booths. So for my first experience, I was very happy, and I knew I wanted to go back. So that said, I ended up grabbing a couple more VIP passes for this year, and I'll be taking my stepson with me this time. But as far as other conventions, I'll be heading to the Cleveland Gaming Classic in Cleveland, Ohio here in September. 
I'm also planning to take my stepson with me this time, and while I can't make it for the whole weekend, I'm looking forward to checking this one out. But beyond these two conventions, I've learned about a lot of conventions that exist this past year, and I'm hoping I can potentially hit up a few, like the Southeast Game Exchange in South Carolina, the Game On Expo in Phoenix, Arizona, and I would love to partake in the Portland Retro Gaming Expo in Portland, Oregon. Without getting into all the details, I'll just say that they look like a great time, and I would love to travel if I can make it work. Alright, we have a couple more questions left, and these are around the podcast, podcasting, and a little bit more about myself. Some great questions came up to end the show off, so let's get into them. First up, we have a question from Tom Houlihan that he submitted over on our Facebook page. He asked, What is your favorite episode that you've done so far? So, I've published 41 episodes, not including this one up to this point. It took a few episodes for me to really find a format that I like, but there are some episodes that I am particularly proud of. Of the ones that I've done so far, I am especially fond of episode 20, the Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII episode. If you haven't listened to that episode, I decided, on a whim, to sum up the game's story in the second half of the show, and I really had fun blending background music and sound effects from the game to help tell the story and it all came together nicely when I reached the end of the tale. Admittedly though, I have a soft spot in my heart for that game and the story, so I completely did that more for myself than I think I did for the show, but from a production standpoint, I am really happy with it. I also really like episode 25, where I talked Castlevania 3. I was getting pretty comfortable with editing my voiceover at this point and decided to make my voiceover evil sounding when I read the story introduction, and I even found a way to get Dee Dee directly involved in the episode too by having him bring me the Castlevania game in his mouth and then growling when I tried to take it from him. In all honesty, I had him tug on his lamb and I captured him growling with my cell phone, and I thought it was cool to extract it and then put it into the podcast recording like I did. So that episode was just fun because I was trying some new things, but if I had to pick a favorite, I think it would have to be episode 22 where I talked about Resident Evil 3. I can't remember when it was specifically, but early on I decided that I wanted the Retro Wildlands to be structured in such a way that I would be talking about my thoughts and experiences about a game, but I wanted to be able to take you as the listener through the game by figuratively popping the game into its console and then recreating the experience of playing it. I would accomplish this by using music from the game and sound effects and take you right from the title screen into the first level or the first few minutes of the game. I wanted listeners who've played the game before to be transported back and relive some of their memories. And if you've never played the game before, you'd have an idea of what the game was about by experiencing it through the picture that I tried to paint. The Resident Evil 3 episode was the one that I think I absolutely nailed it. I used the opening 20 minutes or so of the actual game to follow Jill Valentine around Raccoon City and explained how the game worked and what my thoughts were so seamlessly that somebody told me it sounded like they were listening to an audiobook. 
I also found some creative ways to grab some sound effects and music from my gameplay videos and purpose them for the episode. So while it's not so much my favorite game or topic I covered, Resident Evil 3 is my favorite episode because I'm most proud of the script writing and how it all came together. Sometimes I look at it on our list of episodes and I smile a little bit, sort of like after you mow your lawn and see how good it looks afterwards. It just all came together perfectly. Not that I don't feel proud of my other episodes, don't get me wrong. Resident Evil 3 was just a special one to me as I continue to grow in my writing and podcasting abilities. Next up, we had a question from Eric, who is the host of the Unlockables podcast. He chimed in over on our Twitter page, or X page, or whatever, and he asked, What's the long-term goals of the show? What do things look like a year or two down the road? It may seem like a basic answer, Eric, but at least for the next year or so, I just want to keep growing the podcast and strengthening the brand. I had to slow down my content output considerably these last few months due to things like my job and how much it's demanding of me lately, but I want to keep putting out episodes of the show and try to get back to some sort of routine where you as listeners can come to expect something on a regular cadence again. I'm having a blast with this project of mine and have no desire to stop it anytime soon, so it's just a matter of capturing the motivation when I find it and then falling back on discipline when I don't. The more quality episodes I can produce, the more content becomes available to new listeners, and the further I can promote and get my luscious Italian voice into more earholes. More than that, I want to really expand the Retro Wildlands onto YouTube. I love writing, and especially love writing reviews for video games, and I want to combine that love with my desire to learn about video editing. I set up a Retro Wildlands YouTube channel where I'm posting episodes of the podcast, but I'm also working on making video reviews as well. I already have three up there, and this last one I just posted is about a newer Genesis game called Arcagus Revolution, and this was all thanks to a local retro gaming store near me called Duck Duck Games, because they were generous enough to allow me to borrow the game and play it and review it, and they agreed to promote the video after I posted it. It would help me expand a little, and they would have a video highlighting a lesser-known game that they could hopefully use and potentially sell their stock. It was really fun to do, and I'm hoping I can do more things like that in the future. Plus, with this latest video, I finally decided to put myself on camera and learned how to use my $40 Logitech web camera in conjunction with some cheap lighting that I purchased. It was all a little nerve-wracking since I found myself holding tight to a script, but you know what they say, there's no growth in the comfort zone. I think every podcaster can agree that they would love to find a way to monetize their show and make money off of it. Now that I've done this gig for a year now, I can certainly appreciate the blood, sweat, and tears that are required to make these shows. There's the script writing, the recording, the editing, and it doesn't stop there. If you want to grow your show, it's putting yourself out there. Networking with people, developing meaningful relationships, promotion through social media. It can easily be a full-time job, so why not work towards getting some money for your work? Now, on the surface, I'm not going to lie, I would love that. I would love to open up a Patreon and put something together to incentivize a listener to give me some of their hard-earned money. And in turn, I can use that money to continue to grow the show. 
And maybe that'll be in the cards down the road, but right now, I just want to dig in and keep putting roots into the ground and grow the foundation of the show by creating some stellar content which will allow me to continue to grow as a creator. I have to admit, sometimes I get some crazy bouts of imposter syndrome going on about everything. I've networked with so many awesome people who are doing so many amazing things, and I think to myself, am I even worthy to stand among them all? Do I even have the right to ask someone for money that they've worked so hard for so I can buy a better webcam or upgrade my PC? At least right now, I don't think so. If someone is going to invest in me and give me their hard-earned money, I want to make sure that I can remain consistent and give them something that's worth their time and their financial investment in me. So that's why I want to continue to work hard, make quality episodes, and build up the retro wildlands. Because one day, when it makes sense to, I do want to start making moves to try to generate an income if it's in the cards but I want to be 110% sure that I can provide constant and quality content before I do and build a back catalog that people can enjoy. At least, that's how I feel about the whole thing right now. I still keep going back to what I say over and over again. I'm still humbled and honored that people are even listening to this show, so what more can I ask beyond that? But really though, the question now becomes why? Why am I even doing any of this? Is my goal to make money? Is my goal to just have a hobby and use it to forget my worldly troubles? I'm going to combine the last two questions I got from our listeners and end the show by answering that question. Our last two questions were similar enough that I'm going to combine them and answer them here as our last question on the show today. Chris Copleen, one of the hosts of the Retro Hangover podcast, asked me, What inspired you to start a podcast? Which podcast do you take inspiration from? And what do you love about podcasting? And the Super Garbage Day podcast also asked me, What other podcast do you listen to and do you have any influences? So way back when I was a kid and I got my hands on magazines like Nintendo Power, I loved reading the articles and the game reviews. When I was in school, language arts, English, or any sort of writing-centric class was always my favorite and I always did exceptionally well. I loved to write. My love for video games always found a way to influence my writing, and I would find myself writing video game fanfiction or even putting a video game spin on homework assignments when I could. There was even a point where I tried to novelize Final Fantasy Tactics. In 8th grade, I wanted to write a book based on the game with new characters and stories. I worked on it for quite a while too, but eventually I abandoned it for one reason or another. But as I got older, the idea of writing game reviews or topical pieces on games sounded more and more interesting. But I never really did anything with it and just let myself get swept away in the rigmarole of life. Fast forward to about four years ago. My wife, kids, and I are living in our first home together. I've recently been promoted to a leadership position at my work, making more money and working 9-10 hour days. Life was good. While I still loved video games, I slowly stopped playing them as much as I used to in favor of spending time learning my new role and growing as a leader of people. 
But one day, I had an itch for gaming and had no time to play. That's when I remembered about podcasts and forgot that they were even a thing. Surely there are some video game podcasts that must be out there, I thought. I downloaded a few on my phone, and those podcasts helped scratch my gaming itch. I can't remember what podcast that I was listening to back then, but everything changed for me when I heard one specific podcast episode. I can't remember the name of the show, which is probably a good thing, but I remember thumbing through their back catalog and I saw that they had an episode about Vagrant Story, the RPG from Squaresoft on the original PlayStation. I loved Vagrant Story as a kid and thought it would be cool to hear someone else talk about it. The podcast itself was advertised as two friends replaying the games of their youth and talking about them, or something along those lines. I played the episode and found myself astounded. This show was not great. These guys frequently talked over each other, they made inside jokes that made me feel like an outsider, and based on how they were talking about the game, I could tell they either never played Vagrant Story before, or they never bothered to brush up on it before the episode. I know it's easy to forget details, and I'm sure I do it all the time, but this was done to an extreme. I just remember listening to this show and having one persistent thought. If these guys can make a podcast, then so can I. Now, I want to be very clear. At the end of the day, whoever these guys were, they were putting themselves out there, which is more than most people do, and I have nothing but respect for that. I'm not trying to knock them or their character in any way. It's just the show did not do it for me personally. Now, after listening to that podcast, I eventually found others that scratched my video game itch. Time passed, and my love for video games returned in a very big way. I was leveling out my career path at my job, and things were starting to become a bit more routine. I no longer took as much joy in perfecting my new role at work and networking for the sake of possible advancement. My wife and kids made me incredibly happy, and I felt very blessed, but something was just still missing. Then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, I started to think about my legacy. I started to wonder if I died tomorrow, what would I leave behind? More than that, what would I leave behind that might be valuable to somebody else? While I've built relationships with my family and good friends, all I've really built for myself was a career at work, and I have tons and tons of PlayStation trophies and Xbox achievements that will probably live on after I'm gone. And while those can be considered commendable, depending on the person you ask, I hadn't really produced or created anything to showcase my passions or something that I'm really proud to be associated with. Something that I could look back on and say, yeah, I built that. Something that others could look at and enjoy. That's when I thought about actually going for it. Making video game reviews on YouTube and making my own podcast. I talked about it a lot, and I asked my friends if they would listen to me ramble and thought about what the show could be. But finally my wife had just had enough of me planning and planning, and she got me a basic podcast equipment set. It was her subtle way of saying, stop thinking, start doing. And that's really all it took. I took everything I learned off the internet and by reading books, and I jumped in headfirst and really figured out a lot of this stuff on my own, like I'm sure most indie podcasters do. 
I sold off some of my gaming collection to help fund a refurbished laptop that I bought online, found some free audio and video editing software that did what I needed it to do, and then I spent days refining what would eventually become the Retro Wildlands logo. Once it all came together, I plunked down the cash to have my podcast hosted, recorded my first episode, Resident Evil, and then put it out for the world to hear. So that's pretty much what inspired me to start this project of mine. Chris and Super Garbage Day both asked, what other podcasts do I listen to, and who do I take inspiration from? So leading up to the creation of the Retro Wildlands, I listened to a few podcasts, but I settled on just one that really grabbed me. It's a little show called Remember the Game, which is hosted by Adam Blank, a comedian living in Edmonton, north of me in Canada. I really enjoyed his format. He starts off his shows with an intro segment that includes comments and questions from his listeners about pretty much whatever, gaming, podcasting, personal inquiries, etc. From there, he has a segment where he and his listeners talk about three video games and decide which game to play as it was released, remake into a modern game today, and which one to erase from time forever. That game is called Play One, Remake One, Erase One, and it is as fun as it sounds. The whole premise was fun, but more than that, Adam always came off to me as genuine. He had no issues telling his listeners what he was working on behind the scenes, what struggles he might be working through with regards to the show, and even pulled back the curtain on his personal life a little bit. Just enough to make it feel like you were talking to a fellow gamer and not just a podcast host. All of that inspired my own intros on my shows. I like taking some time to chat with anyone listening and just give them a peek behind the scenes in my world. When I listened to Remember the Game, I slowly started to feel like I was part of that community, even though I didn't really interact with hardly anyone at the time. I wanted anyone listening to my show to feel the same way. Come by the campfire, sit down for a little bit, and relax. Let's catch up on how everyone's doing and just see how things are going. Aside from that, though, Remember the Game has been a big influence to me because Adam is very transparent with how his show has become as popular as it is. At the end of the day, it's just one passionate guy who started a podcast with the intent to learn a new skill and just see where it would go. He put the time and the effort in, and eventually the show caught fire. And that's pretty much it. It inspired me because if one person with a passion can build something that they're truly proud of, I know I could too. So Adam, I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but thank you for being you and always staying true to yourself. You inspire people, and I was one of them. Now after creating the Retro Wildlands, I really started to listen to more gaming podcasts, and I still listen to a handful today. Let me call out a few in no particular order of discovery. The Retro Hangover podcast is one that I listen to quite regularly. This show is hosted by Chris Copleen and Shane Kosky, and both of these guys are incredible behind the microphone. Both of them are very knowledgeable about the games that they play, and while their banter can be as simple as two friends talking about games and making jokes, they can analyze a game's nuances in such a way that makes me come out of the conversation a little more educated. Every now and then, they post a show called The Flight, which is a show that has Chris and Shane talk about a top 10 list of something. 
When I was looking for ideas on how to mix up my own show and maybe put out shorter episodes if I needed more time to finish a game, The Flight is what inspired me to do my own top 10 episodes. Mine are still going long, but it was still fun to do something different and I loved editing these shows together. Pixel Project Radio is another podcast that I listen to. This one is hosted by Rick Firestone, and his approach is a more laid-back and methodical one. Solo or with a guest, this show will dive into a game and look at things like a game's development history and upbringing, as well as elements like the gameplay and whatnot. In the Retro Wildlands, I try to make my shows in such a way that, whether you're a gamer or not, you can still listen to my show and be entertained or come away hopefully learning something about the game. Pixel Project Radio does this very well, and I often find myself listening about games that I've never played before so I can decide if a game's for me or not, or if I just want to get somebody else's perspective on something that I've played before. Rick inspires me to keep that same spirit in my own show, and that it's okay to drop some vulgar language from time to time. The Unlockables podcast, hosted by Eric, is another podcast that I listen to regularly. Eric is a fellow solo content creator, and I think what really drew me to his show was the fact that he's trying to do what I'm doing. Build something he's proud of, and he's doing it his way from a place of genuine love for video games and the gaming community. Eric is pretty transparent on his show as well, and I always appreciated his willingness to allow us behind the veil a little bit. Knowing what it is that I do for each of my episodes as a solo creator, I can really see the work that he puts into his shows, and it inspires me to match that quality. That's not to say podcasts out there with more than one person working on them aren't as hard. I'll bet they might even be harder just because you're balancing multiple people with multiple ideas and multiple passions and multiple ways of doing things. Eric himself inspires me to put my best effort into what I'm creating, and while you should never let great get in the way of good, I never put something out to the world that I'm not proud of. While I'm here to create content, it's content I want to stand behind. I also listen to the Super Garbage Day podcast, even though I've only caught a few episodes up to this point. What I like about this show is the simple premise. Each episode has host B. Ross, who is an actual garbage man, and Mr. Miller playing a game that's over 20 years old for the first time and then talking about it. Then, either through a randomizer or listener suggestion, they'll queue up another random game and the cycle continues. They quite literally find the treasures in the trash, as they say, and just the idea behind the show is also inspiring to me. It really made me feel that no idea is off the table and helped me stand behind my own idea of roaming the gaming wildlands and talking about a retro game I've discovered for the first time and experiencing it fresh or diving back into something I used to play and rediscover what I loved about it. The last podcast I listened to with any regularity is a show I stumbled upon by meeting one of their hosts in a podcast-centric Discord server. This show is called The Waffling Tailors and has brothers Jay and Squidge talking about games, films surrounding games, or just having some lighthearted discussions around a gaming topic. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on this show twice now and hope to find myself back again soon. 
Jay and Squidge themselves serve as an inspiration to me because they helped me keep in perspective that being your true self is by far the most important thing when you're hosting a podcast or just creating content in general. It's very easy to get caught up in the idea that you need to act a certain way or talk about certain things to quote-unquote please the masses or find ways to get more downloads and listens, but at the end of the day, being yourself taking care of yourself, and making projects and connections you're proud of is really what this hobby is all about. While I still feel very out of place in this community sometimes, and sometimes I wonder if I really do belong here, Jay and Squidge indirectly and directly assure me that, yes, I do belong here. There are a few other podcasts out there that I listen to here and there and try to support on social media, but those are the major ones. If I didn't mention your show today, please don't take it as that I don't appreciate you or what you're doing or have done for me. We would just be here forever if I listed everyone, so know that if I've interacted with you in any capacity, via a message or a comment or even a like, know that I appreciate you and I hope we can all keep growing together. The last thing I wanted to end on was the last part of Chris's question. What do I love about podcasting? I love that I've networked with so many people in the last year. I've met some incredible podcasting hosts that have welcomed me as one of their own. I've met and gotten to know people that took the time to listen to my show, and I love nothing more than talking to people about the things that we love. I love that I can look back on what I've built so far with regards to the brand and feel a sense of pride that this was all the result of genuine hard work. I love that podcasting has helped me learn new skills, all of which I've taught myself or have been taught through the mentorship of others. But more than anything, what I love about podcasting is the fact that it requires me to do something that I've never really done before, and that's put myself out there. It might seem obvious, but I can be pretty outspoken and animated sometimes. I'm the sort of person who can make random friends at a bar or hold a conversation with a complete stranger. My wife never minds taking me to work functions because she never has to worry about me fitting in or feeling left out. I'm usually making people laugh or keeping up in conversations. But in reality, I'm kind of a quiet person. I love my alone time, and 9 times out of 10, I'd rather just stay home and work on a project than go out and interact with the world. But in order to grow the Retro Wildlands into what I hope it becomes one day, I have to put myself out there and lay a lot of myself bare for the world to see. It can be very scary for me because I genuinely care what people think of me. Sometimes when I forget something, or make a joke that doesn't quite land right, or otherwise let somebody down, I let it weigh on me. But podcasting is helping me with all of that by putting myself out there and helping me figure out how to expose parts of myself to the world that I normally close off, and how to grow under a spotlight, all while remaining true to myself. There is no growth in the comfort zone, and deciding to take on this hobby has afforded me more growth than I ever would have thought. So if you're listening to this right now, and you're thinking about starting a podcast, or you have an idea for something that you want to build or pursue, stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about whether or not people will like it, or whether or not you may fail. Just stop thinking. 
and then get busy doing. With that, we've come to the end of episode 42 of the Retro Wildlands, our first ever Ask Nomad question and answer episode. Thank you very much for listening to the show today, and a huge thank you to everyone who put themselves out there to ask a question. It still boggles my mind that we've made it a whole year, and it boggles my mind even further that there are people out there who've listened to this show and let alone want to participate with it. From the bottom of my heart, I cannot thank you all enough. I hope this show wasn't too beefy and still entertaining, because from my perspective, I had a fun time answering everyone's questions and having some fun discussions. If this is something that you would want me to do again in the future, please let me know. Easiest way to get a hold of me would be through our social media pages. You can find the Retro Wildlands over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever, or even on YouTube. Just search at Retro Wildlands on those platforms and you should find us. Or you can check out our link tree at linktr.ee slash Retro Wildlands and everything will be listed there. And while I still have your ear, if you like the show and want to show the show or myself some support, please consider subscribing to it on your preferred podcasting platform. The dropping of new episodes is still going to be very sporadic for a little while, so subscribing will let you know the moment I publish something new. Now, if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you left us a good review on your podcasting platform if you're able to do so. Good reviews, I assume, should help circulate the podcast to more people out there, but more than that, they would just make all the work that goes into these feel just a little bit more worth it. So if you could spare a moment, I would appreciate it. But as always, no obligation. Seriously, the fact that you are listening to the show right now is more than I could ask for. So regardless of whether or not you leave a review or join us on social media, I'm just glad that you're here. So what's coming up next? I hinted to this over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page a bit ago if you follow us over there, but I started playing Castlevania Symphony of the Night on the PlayStation. I got an itch to finally play it, and Curtis over on our Facebook page recommended it to me several months ago, so I felt like it was time to dive in. As of this recording, I'm about halfway through the game so far, and boy do I have a lot to say about this one. Is it as good as everyone says it is? Does it hold up today? Well, stay tuned to the show, and sooner or later I will tell you all about it. And then what's coming up after that? I don't know, who knows? That's the beauty of the Retro Wildlands, my friends. You never know what game is hiding just beyond the horizon, and I hope you decide to join our expedition the next time we go charging towards it. Until then, my friends... My name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the Retro Wildlands. <laughs>